Adventure Travelers, and welcome to another episode of Tales of Tavat, a Genshin Lore podcast. Last week, we bawled our eyes out as we discussed Rue and Surumi Island. This week, we've gained an audience with the lovely, the scandalous, and the mesmerizing Lady Lillipar. Kneel before her! Are you crossing great swaths of lore desert, searching endlessly for a visual oasis? Well, come on into our magic bottle at talesoftavat.com, where each episode has its own page with pics and vids that'll hydrate those filthy, nasty, sandy little eyeballs of yours faster than you can make your first wish. Our site also includes links to past seasons and special episodes, artist spotlights from the community for every episode, wallpapers to download, including some new Fontaine ones, a new resource section that we're creating, and some of our favorite Genshin merch. Let us know what you think of this episode and what you'd like to see in the future by emailing us at talesatavatpod at gmail.com, following us on Twitter, talesatavat, or following us on Instagram, talesatavatpod. Now, before we jump into things, I just wanted to say that we got our Spotify wrapped just like everyone else. And it was so exciting and amazing just to see how many people had Tales of Tavat as their number one podcast. And we cannot thank you guys enough for that. And to everyone who sent us a DM or tagged us or emailed us about it. Thank you. It really means so much for us to hear. We were super excited. We'd only had the podcast for like, what, a month and a half last year when Wrapped came out? Yeah, (laughs) it was a short amount of time. It was like someone listened to you. So, so <laughs> and it was you. <laughs> yeah, and maybe your mom. <laughs> like, so it was really exciting to see the difference this year. And we just wanted to say thank you. Yeah. For, and even if we weren't on your number one, if we still showed up on your list of podcasts too, that was amazing. And shout out to the uh the people like me that use a different service for their streaming. <laughs> Uh, we we know that uh, it's not just the Spotify peeps out there that are listening, so thank you. I also want to thank everyone who sent in or tweeted at us uh, the rap. You made Feeny cry. Very, very big happy tears. All the time. Does Google or Apple or anything do like a rap? They should. Uh, yeah, I use YouTube Music, which is Google, and they do a rap. But it's weird because I listen to my podcast on Spotify, but I listen to music on YouTube Music. And Spotify wouldn't give me like a wrapped just for my podcast, apparently. Oh, no. (laughs) So, yeah. But yeah, we just want to say thank you. I also want to out myself and just let everyone know that my number one musical artist was Hoyo. Oh, my God. It was mine, too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And then I was sitting last night writing, listening to it again, going, this makes sense. It's because of the Fontaine soundtrack. There's so many tracks and it's like, oh, this artist again, this artist again, this artist again. What's funny is my entire soundtrack of the year was the Ooblet soundtrack. Don't at me, come at me. I need my cute tuds. But also my number one song was Touch Grass. (laughs) (laughs) And for those who love Baby No Money... (laughs) Al, it doesn't count as touching it if you just listen to it. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, because the song goes, touch ass, touch grass. And I think that follows me pretty to the T. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Like, I do get to touch grass because I do live in the the humid south, so grass is quite prevalent still right now. But 
anyway, we just wanted to say thank you. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone. And even for those who don't do rap, have no idea what we're talking about, thank you for listening. We appreciate it so much. I don't know how many times we can say it. So thank you. We're going to quickly change pace now and talk about surprise incest, murder, and Lulapar. But before we do that, I think we need to quickly recap what we talked about last season in the desert episode, like super quick. Because some of those players come back in for this episode. Yeah, because yes. the, the desert itself was just, well, the desert was very expansive. <laughs> I made myself laugh at that one. <laughs> <laughs> if we remember, prior to the Sky Nail coming down, the now Sumeru Desert was a more inhabitable location. Though we're not sure if it was a forest, a plains, snow, we don't really know. We just know it was inhabitable. Yeah, it, w- it was not a desert before. And the forest was not a forest before. They like switched directions there. They like, 180 Yeah, I think it was like a regular landscape. And then the Sky Nail came down, turned it into a desert. And then Ruka Devada, after, you know, Deshret's nonsense, she like peaced out. <laughs> I think she wandered eastward and then found like a cute little place to set up forest shop. Yeah, she wanted the greatest aesthetic for her cute as a button Aranara. Yeah, she's like, I'm so over the desert. This is the perfect place for my cute little jungle bungalow. <laughs> you, know, you know what she probably said? She's like, I hate sand. It's coarse. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's in my beautiful white hair. It's in my little, like, weird, flowy dress thing. I'm just tired of it. Keeps getting in my eyes. She needed some baby powder to get that sand off. I love how everyone just blasted past this goddamn Star Wars reference. Yes. Okay, at least someone said it. Wait, what Star Wars reference? So, uh, Anakin... (laughs) <laughs> Spoilers, Darth Vader in a line so stupidly set, like so stupidly written. Just talking to Padme and is like talking about sand. He's like, I hate sand. It's so coarse. It's everywhere. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's the line. <laughs> I'm not a Star Wars nerd. Neither am I, but I know it because it's just so stupid. Yeah, it's like very memed. Oh, I did not know that. Trekkies for life. I don't have Star Wars in my uh, algorithm. Well, it'll happen soon. I'm I'm going to fix that for you. I'm very happy about it. No, please don't. (laughs) don't. Hey, Doctor Who's showing up in mine, so. Yeah, Brandon. (laughs) You're welcome. Wait until Star Trek gets in there. That's the good shit. No, what is is the other one? The, like, portal one? It's like Star Portal? What? Star Portal? Stargate? Stargate! (laughs) (laughs) I watched Star Stargate, and you might surprise you since I just called it Star Portal, but I did watch it. <laughs> but did you watch Firefly? No. Thanks. Oh. Anyway, I'm going to jump back into uh, our what desert. Were, we we're going back into the sand. <laughs> so we had three main players in the original Sumeru desert stuff that we talked about, and that is A, King Deshret, a.k.a. the Scarlet King, who was pretty much a douchebag. Well, Ahamar is also his name. (laughs) So make sure we give everybody their 35,000 names. For as much as the desert has a Game of Thrones ambiance, if you will, he definitely has the most names. 
that rivaled Daenerys Targaryen's Stormborn. Mm-hmm. King Deshret was one of the three people who ruled over Sumeru at the time. One of the three gods. They kind of passed by the Archon War and just ruled together instead. King Deshret kind of became a tyranny person after the death of the goddess of flowers, Naboo, who we'll talk about in a little bit. And that's what led Ruka Devada, the original Dendro Archon, to say, peace out, Cub Scout, and go live in her new non-desert area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's to that's favorite thruple. <laughs> the three god kings. Yeah. Then you had the goddess of flowers, Naboo. Naboo Malikata. Malikata. I love her name. I could just repeat it constantly. Naboo Malikata. I don't know, it's like a like a nice little jingle. And Naboo was actually a descendant from the Seelie race. Yeah, she's thought to be the last of the Seelie race. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe she was cast aside. Yeah, she was exiled. Yes, exiled. Thank you. I couldn't think of the word. (laughs) I also want to think that she was a moon princess. I'm pretty sure the moon princesses were Seelies because there's a lot of lore around the djinn that they are tied in with moon princess lore. I mean, the city that they lived in was the city of the moon maiden. So Mm -hmm. Right, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And lastly, we had Ruka Devada. Ruka Devada was the original Dendro Archon. When Naboo let herself die, uh, Ruka Devada <laughs> and Deshret stopped getting along. I do like how you just skirted around the argument of, did she? Did she die? Did she plan <laughs> her own death? Did she make it happen? If you want to know more of that argument, go back to the t- go back to our, <laughs> our desert <yeah>. episode. <laughs> Gods of the desert, yeah. But no, I mean, just to oversimplify it, Nabu was getting along really well with King Deshret. Deshret wanted to explore forbidden knowledge. Somehow, Nabu was allegedly swayed into agreeing, or maybe she admired his blasphemy. Maybe she had her own issues with, you know, Celestia as an exile mm-hmm. of the Sealy race. And uh, she sort of agreed to help him But she also foresaw the cataclysm and a bunch of other scary things. Either way, she said, I'm going to help you do that. And she somehow created a bridge to the Forbidden Knowledge for King Deshret. And she disappeared. Whatever happened to her, if she died, if she turned into something, we don't know. And then that sort of broke up the trio of Nabu, Deshret, and Ruka Devada. Then Ruka Devada left King Deshret as he went crazy, get, you know, gathering this uh, forbidden knowledge and exploring that whole issue. And she was like, I'm out of here. She went eastward and then created the forest. And King Deshret, too, was also like super depressed after the goddess of flowers died because not only did one lover die, but the other lover left him and the thruple <laughs> was dismantled. And he also then created the paradise that is underneath the like tunnel, the dust tunnel <laughs> in Sumeru, mm-hmm. where he froze time. So it would forever just be a place that Nabu would have been at. Question What's that place? So that's the Eternal <laughs> Oasis or the Orchard of Paradisa. Thank you. <laughs> I was trying to bait her. <laughs> he created that to basically, yeah, to create a tomb or a resting place for Nabu, even though she wasn't in it. And then he told all of the djinn that she was in it and that she was just resting and that he would wake her up later. So 
this was also created, interestingly, around the same spot that the desert Skynell fell down. Yeah, because King Deshret messed with time. Wait, I have no idea that he messed with time other than creating the Eternal Oasis. I don't that's what I meant. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I meant. I just meant like he made this place where time doesn't change. Oh, right. So that's just a quick little recap on some of the things that might come up in this episode. So why don't we now actually jump into Lilipar? Who the heck is Lilipar? The mother of Jin. One thing that's important just to say right off the bat, because hopefully we're going to have more lore that goes into the desert coming up in the game just because there is so much behind there that we're just talking about because it changed a lot even from the first time we saw the desert to the next time so this is as of where we at like 4.2 4.3 in the game so you know some things may end up changing yeah and we also have more to explore even in the history so this episode, of course, is just dealing with Lilipar and the fall of Gurubad. We do recognize that there's even more to the desert that we will explore in a future episode in terms of its history. It's deep. It's expansive like a desert. Yes. Aw, Sino. Oh, yay, Sino! <laughs> My failed Sino dad joke. Didn't go very well. <laughs> Uh, well, Tiff, you think that dad jokes are like quicksand taking you under slowly one at a time. So, <laughs> Tiff, do you care, do you care to over explain it? Like, sign on what? <laughs> well, you see, deserts are very large, vast areas. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. Oh my we all thought it was really funny. No need to, <laughs> but. Let's talk about Miss Lilipar. So, in game, we meet Lilipar after. We run into her with Jet, I think. So this is the quest line that we start after we get Ben Ben and we first meet Jet and her father and R.I.P. Rest in Power, Jarabelle, who is kind of like a Gabriel-esque motif. Either way, she's kind of off on her own and she's joined the Tenet tribe run by boobalicious bebel <laughs> <laughs> and so basically she she we're, we're going on exploring some ruins with jet and this really hot dude but we do puzzles perfect we open up a new ruin and within it there's a giant tree within this like a desert cavern and we beat a boss i think it's the construct and then we see a gin we see a genie in a bottle really we take it and then all of the life of this tree just hoofs and dies and that's how we meet little part mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly destruction and mayhem sounds on brand with her i remember when traveler and paimon like spun around like with that crazy look on their face mm-hmm. as you hear this like cork pop and then you hear this like crazy voice come out going if you wanna be with me I'm a genie in a bottle you gotta rub, rub me, me the right way I mean she'd be doing a lot of rubbing but let's also not forget that and and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but Lilipar looks at us as the traveler and is like, "You look familiar. You know who you look like, my master." And she specifically says "master" and references them with a he pronoun versus her mistress, who we will eventually learn is 
the goddess of flowers. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. The goddess of flowers. So we can assume she means King Deshret. Yes. Could just be because we are blonde or not. But we shall see. But after that, she she gets real close into our ears and is like, and she tells us her true name. <laughs> she tells us her true name. And I do have a couple of ideas what that true name is because of the name of the quest. And I did... For a very Wait, long... what's the name of the quest? Dirge of Bilquis. What? The Dirge of Bilquis? Dirge of Bilquis? Yeah. Or, or Bilquis. I, it's it's a little hard for me to pronounce because every time I, I look at it, I want to say Bilquis. Me too, actually. Like, like from American Guy. Yeah, exactly. When I go into the theory of of why they're using Bilquis, and I'm just going to continue to call this Bilquis from now on because I, I can't. I can't not now. <laughs> Neil Gaiman definitely based Bilquis off of very important characters that are really good motifs for King Dashrit, Rukhadvada, the Goddess of Flowers. And for a very long time, I thought the Goddess of Flowers would fill the Bilquis role while King Deshret was kind of the King Solomon role. And I think after going through the quest and reading the stuff from Garabad, I have a different idea of that. <laughs> the Goddess of Flowers is not Bilquis, it's Lopar. <laughs> She's the Queen right. of Sheba. And I say this because there's two theories of who the Queen of Sheba was. And so there's a theory that she was a Yemen queen with the name of Bilquis spelled how it is in the game, B-I-L-Q-I-S. And there's another theory that she was an Ethiopian queen and that would reference Makeda. So it really depends. It could fit both. But the way Lilipar is just like, hey, little mama, let me whisper in your ear. And like, that's how we bond. That's how we're, you know, possessing of Lilipar. We are now the master. It just, I don't know. Queen Sheba vibes. Am I wrong? <laughs> I don't know anything about Queen of Sheba. I know I've heard the name and I've heard it in like movies like and stuff like that. But I don't actually know anything about Queen of Sheba. Can you give like a high level little synopsy? So the Queen of Sheba basically is this queen. And again, we don't know if it she's actually from Ethiopia or what what is now Ethiopia or what is now Yemen. But she comes to Jerusalem, is like, we have lots of gold, precious stones, mm, and kind of seduces King Solomon. <laughs> Food. Technically not a good thing, depending on what book you're reading. I mean, if you want to be with her, there's a price to pay. There mm -hmm. is a price to pay. A lot of people will equate the meeting of Cleopatra and Mark Anthony with the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. I can't with the fact that his name is Mark Anthony. It throws me off every time. I know. No, I mean, it, it makes sense, Al, because... As we'll get into, I mean, her husband mm -hmm. or her man, you know, was very rich and yes. had a lot of gold. Yes. And what's funny is in the Quran and in, I think it's also, I can't remember if it's referenced in the Torah or not, but King Solomon, you know, captures a lot of jinn. You can't see my face right now, but my eyebrows are up high. <laughs> But he, he bottles up a lot of fucking gin. And, you know, it, it turns out the Queen of Sheba is with King Solomon for a couple of months. And he kind of tricks her 
into getting into his bed. This is a whole lot of like, if people call you the Queen of Sheba, they're saying it in a derogatory, like you're a slut. But in the actual story, it's King Solomon who tricks her. And she gets pregnant with Menelik I, who is then another king. But basically, she had a thing with King Solomon. It didn't turn out great, but she did have a child. Sounds familiar. It's so rude. I mean, who doesn't love a slut? Sluts are the best. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, just let us, just let women be powerful and sexy. Yeah. But we can equate Garabad with the idea of King Solomon is referenced with Jin. Garabad is referenced with Jin through Lilipar. So speaking of Jin, though, like, can we back up to, like, what is Lilipar? Yeah, so uh, just to go back. So, yeah, we're talking about Lilipar here. And Lilipar is a Jin. She's a genie. A genie in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so why don't we talk a little bit about what that actually is in Genshin and comparatively IRL. The Jin are elemental spirits that were created by Nabu Malikata when she was exiled and she was walking through the wasteland for 70s. What wasteland? <laughs> Where is it? I have so the many barren questions. The yeah. barren wasteland. <laughs> I feel like the barren wastes is is a barren waste in my lore because I don't know where the frick it is. I have no idea. It just keeps coming up. We yeah, we have I have a lot of questions. Is that referring to its own thing that we haven't seen yet? Maybe it's around Natlon, or is that just referring to the desert? Is it yeah. that gets that gets into a lot of timeline questions because we know that the desert wasn't the desert until a sky nail fell, and now mm-hmm. we know that the sky nails fell after the primordial one teamed up with the second who came to fight the third descender so yeah yeah and this time when M- nabu malikata makes the jinn this is thousands of years ago we're talking about like when the second who came like that kind of timeline but basically she's the goddess of flowers and as she was walking through this barren wasteland somewhere in the world of Tavat. basically as she walked there were streams kind of made out like in her footsteps like she was magical the streams were coming out of her wounds right it was almost like she bled water yeah and then from that were like water lilies started to kind of like bloom out of those as well. And the gin came from the water lilies that grew in the streams. So basically they're they're blood spirits. Gross. I hate they're it. Ele- they're elemental spirits. <laughs> yeah, they got really gross all of a sudden. They bathe in his blood. They came out of her wounds. <laughs> Yes, it's so true. This is the one time I'll allow that reference and not get annoyed about it. (laughs) There's also, there's actually an alternate story of how they came out, um, where they were kind of came from, which isn't really necessarily their very, very beginning, but it's actually in the House of Diana in the um, Academia's library in a book called The Shepherd of the Magic Bottle. And it actually talks more so of Deshret capturing them and putting them in bottles to help them take over the world, which is kind of a little bit further into the story, kind of sort of happens, but it completely removes Nabu out of the story. It sounds like Deshret trying to change the narrative. Yes, exactly. Well, or maybe it's just too far removed where people only remember Deshret. Yeah, true. Yeah, because after Nabu Malikata, the goddess of flowers, quote unquote, dies, Deshret convinces all of the jinn that she's resting so they help build the eternal oasis and you know he says that he will resurrect her later so then they all start following him and i could see that because there is lore where there's a story about a genie who is talking to a young man 
And she's sort of like giving some history of like, well, we were all, you know, kept in bottles, blah, 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 and was talking about Dushrit. And, you know, she was a descendant of the Lapar. And it's easy to see like how maybe, you know, the goddess of flowers over time that just sort of got removed from the story. Yeah. How sad. I know. Just just like uh, it's it's a little too real, right? Like women being erased from history. <laughs> yeah. It's just sad too the idea that like she put so much time and effort into taking care of the djinn and making a home in Iconum, which we'll talk about in a second. But she just died and got forgotten about. And it just makes me really sad. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's like women of history type of thing, though. You're right. <laughs> How rude. How rude. I did want to mention one interesting thing. According to this book collection, The Tale of Shiruya and Shirin, which reveals a whole lot of fun history. And incest? Yes. <laughs> They actually do say about Lilipar that she was born upon a lily pad amid fragrant dewdrops. The white ibis blessed her, and the cobra bequeathed to her a cerulean pearl, and even the mighty giant crocodile bowed to her in worship. And I thought the cobra with the pearl thing was really interesting because it reminded me immediately of the battle pass cutscene. Mm -hmm. The Genesis pearl? The Genesis pearl, yeah. So I thought that was really interesting like could lilipar somehow be tied into that story or is that just referencing the seelies as as you know are they the celestial kingdom are they tied into the celestial kingdom is there more than one genesis pearl yeah maybe like chaos crystals i think it heavily leans into whoever that third descender is Mm. possibly i do believe it has to be something with the third descender just because we don't know a lot about the third descender, but everything we are slowly learning is like they either started a battle, they did die, they're now powerful in death as no seas. So there's a lot of questions and thoughts around that. Mm-hmm. The topic for a future episode. Yeah, definitely. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But back to Lilipar, I'll stop bringing up the Descenders, I swear. And I'll stop bringing up my angers. <laughs> but during the time when Nabu was alive and the Goddess of Flowers and King Desher actually ruled over the Jinn together in Ikonum. And from what I could tell, Ikonum kind of disappeared as soon as the Goddess of Flowers died. If we translate it, isn't it the Moonlight Kingdom? The City of the Moon Maiden of according to the jinn yeah from their ancient mm. language um it's also known as the city of amphitheaters which is interesting yeah and it was built by Deshret and nabu for the jinn specifically yeah it was a place for them to live and a lot of people speculate that that's now where the altar of mirages is which was like a limited time domain that mm-hmm. unlocked for an event there's also relevant credence to a theory that it could have been in a bottle, like Bottle Land. Ooh. Oh, God. Bottle land. Shit. 
Oh my God. There's a genie in one of, you know, in, in the lore that is talking to someone and they keep sort of saying, you know, I really felt like I Kanum was in a bottle itself. So, I mean, it could have just been like a poetic, like we were so sort of in our little bubble, you know, like living our best lives while there was crazy stuff happening. But, you know, who knows? Maybe it's like they were literally in a bottle. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of questions about that too, because when Iconum does eventually fall, Lilipar moves on to Gorobad and we don't really hear anything about like how she left Gorobad did the other genie go with her? Like, we don't know a lot about that, like, transition. Yeah. There's a couple of theories that have been put out there or inferences from different artifact sets and books and stuff. One of them being that when her soon-to-be-in-our-story husband comes into the picture, she's kind of, like, sent off with him from Deshret to kind of almost, like, help him out. And then they fall in love. But there's also an idea that she was, like, kind of given to him as well. But we don't know which mm. one's actually true. If either, <laughs> <laughs> it could have been totally different too. Yeah, because we really just don't know. But yeah, it almost a lot of things kind of skip over, and it's like, okay, she's with Deshra, and then it's like all of a sudden Ormus shows up and she's with him. Then I did just want to say too that back to the altar mirages, it's really interesting because if you read the description for the altar mirages at the very end, it says the people of the desert wastes, <laughs> the desert wastes. Also, once used this place as a ritual site to remember the ages long past. But all these joys and sorrows, like a false mirage, would disappear amidst the flow of the ley lines. Always the ley lines. Yeah, it brought me back to the second ride in Shogun quest again. Yeah. With the ghosts and everything. And also... The wastes, the desert wastes. I have so many questions. And I do think that it tributes the idea that it was in a bottle. Like this bottle just sat in the middle of a barren wasteland in the desert. I love the idea that the ley lines were creating mirages, you know, like a mirage in a desert with, yeah. where it was really just Ermin Soul's memories popping up. Right. Absolutely. It's so sad, too. Like, Ermin Soul, stop bringing us down memory lane. We don't want to relive your sadness with you. But it literally is memory lane. <laughs> <laughs> And another really interesting point about Iconum 2 is eventually when we're talking to Babel and she's introducing ourselves, this is in-game, not during this past storyline that we're talking about. I think you mean Booble. Booble? Boobalicious definition. She does mention that the jinn are eternal prisoners of Iconum. Mm -hmm. She says that's a little part of space. To, well, well, to whatever her face would be. Well, yeah. Right? I mean, two bitches bitching each other out. Like, that's what you get. <laughs> like, I mean, Lilipar was not nice to Babel. Babel yeah. tried to be a little respectful at first. You know, she's good at playing <laughs> face. And then Babel is like, oh, this is how we're playing. Fuck you two. <laughs> You're an eternal prisoner. Can we all just love and hate? One, how Lilipar is so fucking rude to anyone who is of desert dweller descent. And that the only reason she's angry at them is because the djinn are all about freedom and they were forced into slavery. And she's like, well, that's your problem. And then here she is in a fucking bottle forced to be imprisoned. Bitch has no leg to stand on. I don't want to defend Lilipar, but I'm going to defend her a little bit here <laughs> and just say that I have a feeling... Lilipar knew 
you know, that she wasn't necessarily going to make it through the end of the quest. Yeah. And well, I'll elaborate on that more because I don't want to ruin too much of what happens to Lilipar in the old history. But she didn't have to be such a bitch to everyone of the desert. She only really talks to people she thinks are worthy. <laughs> So, you know, whatever. She is a bitch, but she owns it. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I like I like Duggar in the beginning. Like, I, I kind of was tough on, on Babel anyway. And Babel, Booble. Babel. Babel. Like the Tower of Babel. So I was kind of like, yeah, give it to her. But then, later on, as this story goes on, when we are in that quest and we learn more about Lilipar and her history, I'm like, this bitch fucking nuts. Yeah, every time you learn something new about Lilipar, you're just like, what? <laughs> you thought that Alice was a bad mom? Oof. Mm. Does this mean that Nabu was a little scary? I mean, Nabu literally yeeted herself to make a point to death train, So <laughs> True. <laughs> and does that mean that like other Seelies were like that? Well, Lilipar says that when Nabu died, all of the goodness of the djinn went with her. And then they became <laughs> these sadistic creatures kind of afterwards. Oh, that's true. That's yeah. really interesting because to focus on the djinn, because there's how Genshin portrays the djinn and how like Islam and Arabic cultures portrayed the djinn. And mind you, all over the Middle East, regardless of culture, djinn have kind of been there even before like the, what is it, Abrahamic religions became a thing. So they've been there for a very long time. And most of the time they're considered like they're not innately evil or good. They can be tricksters, they can be malicious, but they can also kind of be helpful. And it just depends on the djinn. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really interesting how the idea of, you know, the god, the goddess of flowers, like the second she's dead, boom, all the good and good in their hearts is gone. It's very interesting because in IRL, like djinn are so interesting because they are so diverse they're the gray area of spirits if you will like they're not mm -hmm. like they can be considered demons like some the malicious jinn will have that demonic entity like where people will relate to it versus a lot of the time they can be either very helpful or just like down the the middle of the path wait what are they in dnd or does it make them what chaotic neutral very fuckable i don't know very I don't fuckable play enough i you can tell i play a bard i actually don't i play a tiefling <laughs> i think they are chaotic neutral if not lawful neutral because de d depending on what folklore you're looking at and depending on what region of the middle east you're looking at they can twist your words maliciously or in the folklore of like you're making a wish to a djinn, they'll take you quite literally. It it really depends. It's very uh, monkey's paw. Mm -hmm. mm. Also, I want to say there's this idea with malicious djinn or mischievous djinn that you know what, like in Christian, I was about to say Christian mythology. I, it truly it look. I've watched Bones. I call it a mythology. All of its mythology, <laughs> but. A demon possession is like taking over the body while most cultures that reference jinn consider it like whispering in your ear, which is why I found Lilipar's enchanting us with her true name very suspicious. 
Yeah, that's a very good point, Al. Because it's like she's trapping and manipulating us just with her voice. Because it's sultry. <laughs> but I'm going to bring us back. Well, actually, I'm going to take us to the leaving <laughs> of Iconum. So, as we know, we really don't know what leads Lilipar to leave Iconum. We don't really know where all the djinn go. But we're going to assume that most of them go to Gorobad. Well, we know at least she does. Yeah, we know at least she does. So, Gorobad is uh, founded by Ormazd. And Ormazd is some sort of shepherd. Well, let me let me back up. I don't know that we know if he founded it, but he did end up ruling it. So Ormuzd was a shepherd who sort of gained the favor of Deshret and Lilipar. And he started uniting the desert people to overthrow a tyrant whose name was Huvashtra. And so once he was able to overthrow Huvashtra, Ormuz sort of became the de facto ruler of the city of Gorabad, and he rose into prominence over the next however many years. This is after Nabu disappears, but before Deshret dies. Okay. So you have Ormuz sort of getting in good with Deshret and the Lipar and overthrowing this tyrant, uniting the people, and you have Lilipar being very enchanted by this and sort of being like, wow, this Ormuz guy, he is really doing something different. He's not just another human man. He's actually freeing people and believes in freedom. And she falls in love with him. She actually believes that he is someone that is interested in ending slavery, which was extremely important to her. And as he grew in power, lo and behold, he becomes corrupt, like so many human men. And so (laughs) for some reason, Lilipar has no grace whatsoever for any little ounce of corruption when it comes to freedom. And she creates a whole evil plan to ruin him and his city of Gurabad over three generations using her own children because she is that pissed off. (laughs) Mom of the year. (laughs) I don't even think that makes her a pageant mom. Like, I don't, I don't know what that makes her. Frederica could never. None of them could ever. (laughs) So that's when uh, Lilipar has her first child, Sheeran. And Sheeran is the oldest. She's part Jin, which is interesting. Like it kind of suggests that she might have gotten some of her mom's powers, but we're not really 100% sure on that either. She definitely got some of her mom's powers, by the way. Oh, okay. We're not sure how. But she did. <laughs> then Lilipar gets pregnant again by an unknown suitor and has Kisra. Mm-hmm. And Kisra, first off, Lilipar leaves this kid to be raised by the giant divine bird Gognus. Mm-hmm. Who does that? Lilipar does. Yeah, Lilipar. everybody in this game leaving their orphan children all over the fucking place. <laughs> Orphan alert, orphan alert. <laughs> orphan alert. Or would rather be an orphan alert? Like, I don't know. Yeah, they would have been better off. I mean, she she left him with the, the divine bird. So yeah, he was or- he was an orphan. Mm-hmm. Like, is this the equivalent of leaving your kid with the Adepti? Or is it the equivalent of leaving your kid with 
Durin. This is the equivalent of leaving your kid with a demon in a cave. Oh, so Shenha's parents. Yeah. She very deliberately did this because it was all a part of her master plan. So let, let's back up to the birth of Shirin as we go through the gins of our lives. Soap <laughs> opera. So Ed Shirin. oh god oh no i hope she didn't look like him the lipar and ormazd gave birth to this daughter named shirin and before delivering shirin to ormazd she prophesied three times that number one shirin would fall in love with a great hero and bear a child that would surpass their father number two many of shirin's relatives would have a sweet end and number three Shirin alone would be given her father's kingdom. Now, when Shirin was born, she also gave three warnings to the Ormazd. And and those were, number one, Shirin's joy would bring tears to her father's eyes. Number two, Lilipar and Ormazd should no longer feast at the same table as Shirin once she was wed. And number three, their daughter's heir would be an ill omen upon the king's land. So she has these three prophecies and these three warnings at the time that Shirin is born. So she is putting this whole evil plan in place just to bring down Ormazd and Gurabad, his city, right? Quick question. Uh-huh. Does she really have any grounds to be making prophecies or is she just totally bullshitting this all? <laughs> she's just prophesizing her own shit that she's about to do. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Is that what, what it that is said. what it is? That's yes. what I thought. Did she plan the incest? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. She definitely planned she the incest. Yeah. This is so culty. <laughs> but she makes this whole master plan and she's basically warning people about it, but then the warnings are part of her plan. This is some tar- Targaryen bullshit. I love it. House of Dragon me motherfuckers. Yeah. So part of her master plan not just having Sheeran. I mean, I you know, once she has this daughter, <laughs> she also runs off and somehow has a son, Kisra, that Feeney was just talking about. I guess she doesn't necessarily carry a child the same way a human would, or maybe she was just away from Ormuzd for long enough, <laughs> so he didn't know. But she gives birth to this son, Kisra, leaves him with the divine bird named Gognus, and her man, Ormuzd, has no idea that she did this. That she had this whole other child. <laughs> Which is insane. I was gonna say, she also had like 300 kids after this. So it's probably like just mm. the way she looked, you know. What? Even if she was carrying, it's like, yeah, you know. Wait, sh- she had other kids? Well, no, we know that um, Ormazd had 300 heirs. We don't know if they were all... <laughs> <laughs> if they were all um, Lilipars. I mean, I kind of want to assume so. Maybe he had a bunch of wives. We Concubines? Don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're related somehow to Sharon just because you know it being like like one of the things that happens is with their sibling yeah we know we know that they're related to shirin and we know that they are her father's heirs we just yeah. don't know if they're lilipars <laughs> i like the idea though i do love the idea because apparently she can just shoot out kids like <laughs> a bb gun <laughs> I mean, Shirin does it later. Spoiler alert. See, that's the great thing about the jinn. Here's the thing. In in many cultures, jinn can take multiple different forms, whether it be human all the way down to scorpions. So she could have just been having 
scorpion babies pushing out 300 a day. Well, the scorpion piece that. of the lore is about to come into play. Okay, perfect. Mwah. In a different, a very different way. Do you think if we just asked Ed Sheeran, he would be able to tell us? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, it's his family history. He would just mm-hmm. be doing an acoustic version of Genie in a Bottle. <laughs> I hope that there's an acoustic version of Genie in a Bottle somewhere out there. There is, but I mean, he was, you know, part of the Lannister army randomly. Just imagine Ed Sheeran being like, you gotta run me the ride. <laughs> no, <man. laughs> I hate it. <laughs> so Kisra, the son of Lilipar that was abandoned with the giant divine bird named Gognest, he's very just naturally ambitious. Right. So he just with the help of Gognus, who sort of helps him along and his exploits and everything, and just his natural disposition, he gets the attention of Ormazd, who is, you know, the ruler of Gorobad. And he starts plundering the desert in the name of Ormazd. So there's all these other city-states in the desert. And Kisra starts going around and just being like, I'll take this, I'll take that, I'll murder all of you, I'll murder all of y'all. And he destroys what's said to be 99 cities in Ormazd's name. So he meets Ormazd, he's like, hey, I got you, boo. I'm going to go out and kill everyone in your name. He enslaves 99 sages from these 99 cities he destroys. He imprisons them back in Gurubad. They're just plundering, raping, pillaging. I mean, maybe not raping, hopefully not raping, but pillaging and plundering. And it was so successful. And part of that was due to Lilipar. Lilipar is pulling the strings in her master plan. And she sort of befriends Kisra and is like helping him do this. And how does she do that? This blew my mind. She designs machines <laughs> that are driven by the remnants of jinn spirits. She also inspires Kisura to build a, quote, colossal machine that could swallow up and spit out artificial objects, end quote. Hello? <laughs> Is that? Oh. She says, um, he wanted unlimited power, and so I gave it to him. I designed for him machines driven by the remnants of jinn spirits, and in a dream of pitch black darkness, I inspired him to build a colossal machine that could swallow up and spit out a torrent of artificial objects. This hoe went off and designed the room golems. Mm-hmm. Yep. Literally. Like, how crazy is that? She is the mastermind of it. And then Kisra built them. And so this makes me wonder, did Gurubad create, and maybe other desert tribes, did they create the technology that was later co-opted by Conria? Oh my god, that would be so fucking cool! They could have been descendants of them too. Mm-hmm. It also makes a lot of sense because in the desert we see a lot of high-end technology that is part of King Deshret, such as the Triangle Guys, that I always forget the names of. But also because a lot of these cities eventually plot twist end up sinking into the ground. Yeah, I mean, we at least know Gurabad did. So if they had all this technology, did Conria rise from the ruins of Gurabad after it sunk down into a chasm? Maybe that's why Conria is underground with a big ass door. It's Gurabad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's probably all of them. It's crazy. Yeah. Ooh, that's crazy. I don't think my mind took it that far. Like, I was like, okay, it's sunk, it's down there. Yeah, I just can't believe it. Like, we we don't think of these ancient tribes as having that technology, like that level of, of technology. I mean, we should because Connery is ancient, but... Yeah. Well, no, and it's like you're saying, though, this is thousands of years ago. And I think if there's one thing we've learned 
in the last few months, it's that all of these nations that were around thousands of years ago had some insane technology. And that's not just here in the desert. That includes Inconomia, it includes Conria, and it includes the ancient civilization in the chasm. Oh my god. I just had an epiphany. A Tiffany? A Tiffany. I had a Tiffany. Excuse me? Did you talk to me? I have no evidence of this, but because of the idea that we have multiple civilizations with like high-end technology, somehow my brain instantly thought the fall of the Bronze Age. Mm. No one? Nope. Nothing. No idea what you're talking about. Fall of the Bronze Age? What? Yes. I feel very history inept tonight. (laughs) I'm that way always, so... (laughs) We could probably go into that, like, on a full... Now I want to, like, find more parallels. But there's this idea that within the Bronze Age, there was, you know, a significant amount of technology that we, to this day, still do not know. Damascus Steel... Um, is one of them. Greek fire, which we only recently found again. What? What is Greek fire? Oh my god. Do you want to know what dragon fire really is? That's Greek fire. Is that like when you eat hummus that's like way too spicy? <laughs> no, this is this is this is basically napalm. Oh. But in the Bronze Age, which the Greeks would fling out of ships. And the water would catch fucking fire. It's amazing. Oh my God. (laughs) Travelers, I want all of you, this is your homework. Find me all the little pieces of evidence that relate to the Bronze Age of ancient Tabat history. Let's fucking go. I just want to say that the wee nut, you know, is probably one of the oldest things around. I I recently learned that. Other than a pep. (laughs) A pep doesn't matter. Oh, God. And I just want to say that I feel like one day we're going to figure out a way to talk to the wee nut and they're going to tell us everything. Like, I feel like they're just dying to tell someone. I mean, Alice clearly brought them back over here to Earth because they made their film debut in the movie Tremors. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my fucking God. Uh, Okay, so this is our six degrees of of Kevin Bacon. We've so far, we've gotten to that like at level three, I think. (gasps) Mm -hmm. (laughs) To that wee nut tremors, Kevin Bacon. (laughs) (laughs) I will say though, the wee nuts are blind. So that makes sense. And they remember Destra. And I, I forget exactly what they said. They were, I think they were around before the desert was the desert, right? Yes. Crazy. But anyway, Brandon, bring us back. We were just about to get to surprise incest. Uh, yeah. So we have Sheeran, the daughter who was born. Ed, not Ed. Not Ed. Just a daughter whose first name is Sheeran. And she was born to Lilipar and Ormuz because they were getting it on. And, you know, I don't know if they were already trying to have a baby before Lilipar <laughs> decided I'm going to fuck you over and your whole city-state. Either way, they have Sheeran. Lilipar gives the three prophecies, the three warnings. She scurries off and has another baby, which is Kisra. Kisra plunders the desert in the name of Ormazd because he meets him somehow. He's very ambitious. 
this is all because Lilipar's machinations are leading him to do this. She's creating all these machines. She creates the freaking room golems. So he's like just taking over all these city-states in the desert in the name of Ormazd and Gorobad. So what does Ormazd do? He rewards Kisra before building all that power for him by changing his name to Parvez, which later becomes Parvez Ravan. And he offers Kisra his daughter's hand in marriage. Uh, not knowing that they are siblings. Dun, dun, dun. Oh my god, this is Oedipus. This is Oedipus Rex, isn't it? Oh my god. No. Not everyone but the Weenut keeps their eyes. So. so we love to joke about surprise incest, but this game literally has it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the most literal surprise incest yeah. you could have. And Lilipar knew this. She was like, let me get my kids together. <laughs> this Disgusting. <laughs> Disgusting. So it was like they're only half siblings. How bad could it really be? Really bad. <laughs> <laughs> so so they get together, they get married. Now Sharon becomes aware through the years of her mother's original prophecy for her. So just to recap, her prophecy for Sharon was that she would fall in love with a great hero and bear a child that would surpass their father, that many of Shirin's relatives would have a sweet end, and that Shirin alone would would be given her father's kingdom. So Shirin is sort of like not really in love with Kisra. She's not really happy with their marriage. And she's kind of like, I know my magical mom had this prophecy about me, so when is it going to come true? Like, when am I going to be happy and get all these wonderful things? And Kisra is not really in love with Shirin either. He's more so just doing it to stay on her dad's good side and get the power as well, right? Probably. I don't think there's much written about his side as far as how he feels about her, but she definitely is not happy with him. And she's waiting for this prophecy. She's like, is this really the hero that I was meant to marry? and have a kid with so she just becomes more and more deeply unhappy now keep in mind for some reason Sheeran she takes on a, a lot of her mother's power and sort of genie traits whereas it seems like Parvez maybe doesn't or maybe he just takes on a different aspect of it but Sheeran is very kind of bored with humans she's looking for something sort of beyond the mundane humanity and so she sort of starts to lose her mind a little bit. She's she it just kind of burns through her mind. She decides, you know, if this prophecy isn't going to happen to make me happy, I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> so she convinces her husband Parvez, aka Kisra, to help her force this prophecy to pass. So what does she do? <laughs> oh, and by the way, Shirin is also using this power that was passed down to her from Lilipar to enslave Jin spirits with within Jesus machines. Christ. So, you know, her husband Kisra is like using all these machines to take over parts of the desert. Shirin, in the meantime, is like using her genie powers to sort of take these husks of genie spirits and implant them into the machines to create this machine army for him. And Lilipar the entire time is singing in a corner going, <laughs> Yeah, like, oh, here's some blueprints for that next machine you want to do. <laughs> oh, you got you two are the just the cutest couple. <laughs> just look at y'all. I just I can't wait for you to have a baby. I hate and... that. I hate that so much. <laughs> and so anyway, Sheeran, you know, sort of twisted into madness. She convinces 
Kisra, aka Parvez, to help her force this prophecy to come true. So one night there's this grand banquet for Armazd and his 300 heirs. And Shirin and Parvez, again, we don't know <laughs> where the 300 years come from. But I want you to all think that they all came from Lilipar. I mean, she she would be fine with it if they did. She, I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. She, and she'd be maybe, okay with them, you know, what happens next, too, because it's all part of her plan. I know. And I, I like to think that Ormazd thought he was sleeping with a bunch of other women, but it was really just Lilipar. <laughs> disguise oh that'd be so good jesus but i like get it girl fuck it (laughs) so shirin and parvez they actually at this grand banquet for ormaz and his 300 heirs they have the honey at this banquet poisoned with scorpion venom well i also think it's really important to note that part of that like because of the prophecy, Shirin was not allowed to eat with them, as noted in the rules and regulations of Lilipar. So Shirin this whole time had been exiled from dinners. So Shirin, as one of the heirs, wasn't even invited to dinner. Right. Yes, that's right. Because one of the warnings that Lilipar gave to Ormaz was that Lilipar and Ormaz should no longer feast at the same table as Shirin once she was wed. Which is just like, imagine like... <laughs> You and don't invite one heir, and they're like. <laughs> so what? What they did was Sharon and Parvez. They get some scapegoats to to actually do the poisoning, and so they they get these scapegoats to poison them. There's like different accounts of like who it was, if they were slaves or you know sages or something. So what happens is they poison everyone, all three hundred heirs and or must die from the poison and parvez was very reluctant to co-conspire with shirin to do this but he did it and the uh people that actually did the poisoning basically parvez turns on them blames them they poisoned everyone and as those people were getting murdered for killing everyone they cursed parvez so I guess Shirin got Parvez to basically hire people to do the poisoning. He sort of turns on them after the deed is done and says they did it. They get killed. They curse Parvez. So you have these Shirin and Parvez just mass murderers, basically. Wild. And by the way, just to go back to one of the prophecies of Shirin's birth, this is how many of Shirin's relatives meet a sweet end. <laughs> sweet end. Sweet end. <laughs> so Sino wrote <laughs> Sino did it, yeah. <laughs> um, this is also how Parvez becomes known as Parvez Ravan because now he's the king. Now that Ormuzd is dead, he becomes the king. Which this still isn't the prophecy because Sheeran's supposed to be the only person in charge. Mm-hmm. Hmm, I wonder how that's gonna happen. <laughs> You know, little, little, little hardcore sex, and then all of a sudden he died of a heart attack. I don't know. <laughs> like that, that'd be a good way to go. Yeah, for he him. wishes, he wishes that's how it happened. Did they already have their kid at this point? No. So now they have their kid. So Shirin and Parvez have a son, Shiruye, who is later called Karamdim. And so Shirin is very in love with her child, but Parvez, <laughs> he's a little scared. Because he remembers the third warning that Lilipar gave to Ormuzd, which was, roll back the tape, their daughter's heir would be an ill omen upon the king's land. So he knows 
that Shiruye is a danger to him because he's the king and this is the heir that he had with Shirin. Meanwhile, Shirin loved Shiruye very much. Parvez is like, well, I'm not trying to have this around because things are dangerous. So he banishes his son from the kingdom once he's of a certain age, and he forces him to cover his face as he flees Gurabad. Wearing a brass mask. Yes. This is so Greek. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> I love it. Oh. <laughs> One interesting thing, just as a little side note to the brass mask that he has to wear, the speculation of that he wore it so sway. People didn't know that it was him, you know, then know that his father kicked him out and all that kind of stuff. But it could also be because they were incestual that the kid was a little messed up in the face. Oh my God. Yeah. So people have deduced that it could be that, you know, an asymmetrical face is the thing that happens with incest. So he could have looked a little funky. He just looks like King Charles of Spain. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Or was it? Oh, fuck. Is it Philippe? I can't remember anymore. The guy with the Habsburg jaw. Listen, there are consequences to surprise incest sometimes. Yeah, Yeah, it's called bad genetic diversity. But it's entirely possible that he looked normal because his mom was a genie. Yeah. And his dad was also part genie. Yeah, could just be hiding his identity. But I like the idea that people went down a scientific route with it. (laughs) (laughs) This also very much is reminiscent of the story told in Kaya's hangout. When you meet with Kaya in Sumeru, one of the paths you could take in his hangout is watching a play happen. And in that play that Kaya eventually acts in, the son has been outcast because he is the father doesn't trust him. And he like fights his way to try to prove his father's trust and the father still doesn't trust him. (laughs) I just think that's interesting. It comes out of this old story that Kaya actually knows as well. When you play The Hangout, he um, really resonates with it. You know, the idea of all the familial issues, the father, and he actually starts improving <laughs> and he's like what is freedom and kaya goes on this whole rant about how he's going to instead love the new place instead of going back to the homeland that disgraced him and it's all off the cuff as he's acting out the part and travelers kind of sit in there the audience like man this is personal that's so cool because that's also happening in sumeru mm-hmm. and i forgot to mention by the way, that all of this soap opera is explained in the book collection, The Tale of Shirye and Shirin, which was inspired by Khosro and Shirin, which is a famous Persian tragic romance. So Shiruye has to flee Gurabad because his dad is like, get out. I don't want you overthrowing me. His face is covered with a brass mask when he leaves, which he later continues to wear. And I love that this this theory that Tiff brings up of like, maybe he was doing it because he was scary looking (laughs) either way since he starts wearing this brass mask it becomes sort of a symbol of exile and a symbol of the tyranny of gurabad and it actually inspires a lot of people to start following him as sort of like a symbol of resistance they really start seeing him as resistance figure against gurabad so shuriye and ends up at the temple of the moon goddess which I'm assuming is the city of the Moon Maiden that was still there, I guess, maybe. And so Shirin finds out where her son is. And in an attempt to finally rid herself of her jackass husband, she disguises herself as a divine priestess of the temple. And she goes there and she starts talking to Shirye and gives him this false prophecy about overthrowing his father. 
trying to be like, ooh, I'm psychic. I know what you need to do. There's a prophecy and you must overthrow your father. Um, but then at the last moment of this whole interaction, this breeze blows off her veil and it reveals her oh. face. So the jig is up. Her son knows what she's doing, but her son, seeing her veil fly off her face, is so sort of ashamed and terrified by the fact that she would even do this. And it reminds him so much of his own face being covered by his father as he had to, you know, as he was exiled, that it inspires him to basically do what she was trying to get him to do in the first place. So he sneaks back into Gurabad and stabs his father to death while he's sleeping. And then he begs his mom, you know, to forgive him. But she, of course, is just fine with it. She's like, oh, <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Give me a hug, son. The kingdom is ours. It's so weird that like he knew his mom literally told him to do this. And then he's like, mom, please forgive me. I know. Yeah. I went and did what you said. Well, they didn't know each other that well yet. Yeah, but still, someone tells you to do something, you're going to go beg for forgiveness now. Well, so, I mean, that kind of just sort of shows what Shiryu's personality was like. Because he takes over the throne, but then he's so guilt-ridden by what he did to get it that he starts having these horrific nightmares. And one night in a frenzied state, just suffering intensely from insomnia and nightmares, he is wandering around and he falls into a deep chasm and disappears. And then it is said, according to legend, that a plague emerged from that chasm and it kills half of the city of Gurabad. Yo. And then rulerless and plagued, the city sort of falls into ruin until it was eventually devoured by the sand. Now, according to Lilipar later, like when we're actually doing the game quest, she says that the entire city itself fell into the chasm. And she says that she used the quote-unquote dark abyss to punish that which she hated. And that makes me ask a question, like, did she use abyssal power to make the city fall? Did the city oh, fall into yeah. the abyss? 100%. For sure. Yeah. I don't know if it fell into the abyss, but she would 100% used abyssal power. Mm -hmm. How did she get abyssal power if she's a, a genie and she's born of a pep, you said? A pep, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It makes me wonder if there's like this whole other backstory about her that we we are not aware of yet. So Gurubad falls into this chasm allegedly or gets swallowed by the sand when it's already in ruin, depending on which legend you want to go with. Now, as far as Shirin goes, according to legends, she was enslaved as a genie in a bottle by King Dusherit. Or, alternate legend, she's still wandering the desert as an angry apparition. And then, you know, we find out that King Dusherit, who knows where Dusherit was when, when all of this was happening over <laughs> years and years and yeah. years. <laughs> He was with the forbidden knowledge. Somewhere. Yeah, he was like, he was like ramping up his plan to actually finally get the forbidden knowledge. I guess. Yeah, he was knee deep in it. And apparently, and and I, I also wonder if maybe him getting the forbidden knowledge was tied into Gurubad falling. Yeah, because he went a wackadoodle when he went more wackadoodle when he had the forbidden knowledge. Right. But we will say that he finds out what Lilipar did, because again, this is all Lilipar's master plan. From the birth of Shiruye up until he stabs his own father to death while he's asleep, falling in the chasm, filled with guilt. This is like you have Lilipar in, in the corner being like, at last. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Payback is mine. Yeah. I, I finally got back at Ormaz, who has been dead for years and years. And years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like what is return on value for that to not even see yeah. his face you know 
Yeah, I mean, it, apparently it wasn't enough to get rid of him. She had to get rid of whole kingdom of Gurabad, the whole yeah. city-state of Gurabad. But King Deshrit comes back, because remember, Ormazd had sort of grown into prominence by being in Deshrit's good graces and uniting the desert. And he was very much seen in a positive light by Deshrit at one point. So Deshrit finds out what Lilipar did, and he's so enraged by what happened to Gurabad that that's when he splits Lilipar into seven parts. How painful do you think that was? Probably pretty painful. I mean, she's still walking. Well, she ain't walking, but she's still in a bottle. I just want to know if she was, was she already split into a bunch of parts? Because we're, did she have 300 kids? And <laughs> was she, um, you know, out there having babies? You know, what was she Gognis? Like, I, I have so many questions about Lilipar. And like how many Lilipars there are out there in the world. Is she Dottore? No. Oh my gosh. Uh, stop oh, it. No, she gosh. can't be yes. Dottore. Why not? Because I hate him. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, and you love Lilipar? <laughs> and this brings us back to the beginning where I was like, Lilipar doesn't care about anyone because Lilipar knew that she wasn't going to make it through her quest line because she had already been broken up into seven pieces. It was really just all about her spirit kind of yeah. hanging around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she knew she had to go back to Gurabad at the end. We help her find her the pieces of her soul, basically. Her fragments that are all over the desert. So this way she can be somewhat whole again. And then she goes back to Gorobad to kind of get her sentence. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. Like, what do you think they did to her there in the spiritual afterlife? Mm. I, I'm going to guess it's not an applause. No. Probably a little bit of torture. I mean, partly in the abyss, fully in the the abyss. Like, did she go into the abyss? Where is it just like the ruins of it there? Like, are there ghosts around? I don't. Or do you think she passed into the afterlife? That was kind of what I thought. Was I'm returning to Gorobad as in I'm going to get my sentence in hell. Well, yeah, because she said that she was going to be reunited with her children. Why would you want that? remorse like those kids are waiting there with like holy water to she has no remorse (laughs) yeah they have pitchforks (laughs) yeah fire they're actually sitting there with deshret just like ready to split her back up and the time loop entails i took it as like it was her long coming punishment yeah that she knew she had to face like i feel like she knew what she was doing was evil and horrible and you know, she did what she needed to do. And, you know, now that we were putting her back together, she was like, all right, well, now it's time to go to hell and face what I did. Mm -hmm. And do you think that kind of brings into question too the understanding of what the afterlife is in Tabat as well? You mean the ley lines? Well, yeah. You know, like we just question like, what did Lilibar going back mean? But is Lilibar assuming that she is going to be met with the face-to-face with the ghosties, you know, of her past? More than likely. Yeah, or does she look at it just a a final end? Right, because we know that spirits can be encapsulated. We just talked about it last week with Rue and Surumi Island and the Thunder Manifestation. And we know we see ghosts everywhere because of the ley lines, but the ley line ghosts we've interacted with as well mm-hmm. so is that what she's kind of going back into a ley line to figure out did she end up in the abyss is she going to be one of gold's next experiments oh no yeah i have a lot of questions about that if she was using the quote-unquote dark abyss to punish 
people. And if she says the entire city fell into the chasm, I mean, the the people in that city, are they in the abyss? And is she going into the abyss? Since we know that there are basically souls floating around in the abyss that gold can pull out and put into a body. Yeah. And I also think it's important just to point out, we've been using the word chasm. It's a different chasm than the one in Leeway, just so everyone (laughs) knows. There are multiple chasms but there only is one the chasm. Right. <laughs> just just want to clear that up because I feel like that could be confusing. Yeah, for sure. You can't even say the desert chasm because the other chasms, it's on the, the edge of Sumeru. <laughs> the non-capitalized <laughs> chasm. <laughs> yes, I like that. The not capitalized, the lowercase right. chasm. Right. The small C chasm. <laughs> the small C chasm. <laughs> Hold up. We still need to talk about the thing that Lilipar says to us at the very beginning of when we meet her and that that we remind her of her master. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. so we know that we have been confirmed as the fourth descender or at least the Fatui have confirmed that we are the fourth descender. So we and we know this via many other characters saying that we smell of the stars albedo i was thinking razor yeah like many other yeah razor did Zhao tells us that we smell a little weird but that leads me into the idea that we know lilipore's master was deshret was he or is he the third descender mm-hmm. and that when a pep ate him kind of shit it out into gnosis probably not but he could be one of the descenders we still don't know we don't have a confirmation of the third descender we do know they make up the gnosis however we also don't know how early we came to tavat we could have come during the cataclysm or we could have come even far earlier we knew we came before we we've confirmed that because yes our sibling ruled with, well, didn't rule, like served in Conria. Mm-hmm. I would like to throw a little wrench though, Al. And I think you make a very good point about her master possibly being the descender, but I think it's possible that she's referring to Naboo. Ooh. And I think it would be really interesting if Asili was the third descender and Asili's magic created the Gnosis. That'd be really interesting. However, she always refers to Naboo as mistress. True. Mm-hmm. That's true. But I don't know. There's just something about it. There's Because I think you make a really good point, even with a pep, mm-hmm. where we don't know what happens to Naboo. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. But who knows? I mean, it could be anyone, really. Mm-hmm. It's like you said, it could just be some random blonde person. Yeah, it's like, we are very specific in the blonde sphere of Genshin. <laughs> yeah, they're always like, oh, you're the blonde traveler. And I'm like, Oh, have you seen Dainsley? And it's like, yeah, y'all are lazy with platinum blondes, but not regular blonde. Oh my god. (laughs) You can't even have a strawberry blonde. (laughs) Not really. But there's also the idea, because if we're looking just by hair color, the closest person who has our exact hair color is Kave. And he is also, like, there's a lot of iconography that links him to King Deshret. Oh, so... Deshret was Auto Apocalypse from Honkai Impact 3rd. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it took a long time, but you got me to sign. Like, <laughs> I got I got there. <laughs> I found a way. Yeah. 
But yeah, we know the three players of the desert are big players in the history of Tavat, even more so than some of the gods, I would say, or even the archons. Mm -hmm. And they've shaped so much history and there's so much linking them to the greater sphere of history that I just, there's something about all three of them that is like, there's something more to Deshret, there's something more to Nabu. I mean, we all know there was more to Rukunavada, which we've explored a bit, but it's fucking cool. And now that I know that this could also be a reference to the collapse of the Bronze Age, I am now going to obsess. I love it. Obsess. And then also, why? Why? Okay, I I understand why. I'm going on a tangent. I'm so sorry. But like, there's a lot of Greek in the Samaritan Desert, which makes sense because Cleopatra, yes, she was Egyptian, but she was mostly Greek. <laughs> so it makes sense. The only other thing I wanted to add was, well, first of all, this isn't the end of the desert. We're, we're going to do another desert episode at some point because we know that after the fall of Gurabad, there's a lot of other cities that pop up in the desert that tie into some other characters, such as Tainari, and where he comes from, also uh, Zephos, who I think is actually one of Lilipar's children. Ugh. I mean, she had a lot. She did. She had, you know, 301, apparently. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was just a photocopy. I mean, if the one kid was a surprise kid, I'm sure she got other ones. Right. Maybe she had like a bunch lined up. Yeah, just in case. Just like, I need one of these to marry my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> I just need one of these to marry his sister. But I think Zephos, Zephos was maybe her favorite that she protected. But we'll get into that in a future episode. I think on that note, and that's all the time that we have here today, travelers, because we could stay in the desert for 72 days. <laughs> but we won't. I've been here for 84 years. <laughs> Uh, thank you guys for coming down into the desert with us, soaking up some sun. I hope you had some suntan lotion on. Oh, like Cheryl Crow. Yes. Or maybe a raven. <laughs> but uh, next week, we are going to be talking about the ley line disorder. So get your apparitions of the past ready because we're going to go back and see it all. If you liked this episode and you want to let us know what you think or you didn't like this episode and you want to know, let us know what you think, you can email us at talesofdefoppod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Tales of Tavat Pod, or follow us on Twitter, Tales of Tavat. Until then, safe journeys, travelers. We'll see you next time. Bye, Neil Gaiman nerds. <laughs> oh, Neil. Come on, Sandman. <laughs>